being verses 21 through 26. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now let's turn in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll be reading the entire chapter. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned, Instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what then do I have with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? 
but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, thank you for these words, these stern words. And we pray that you would help us as we consider these matters. Give us ears that are open, hearts that are ready to believe and to obey what you would have us to do. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In our continuing study of the marks of a true church, we come this morning to the least understood and the least appreciated of these marks. There is nothing that many people dislike more than the idea of church discipline. Even those words, church discipline, conjure up horrifying images of John Calvin rubbing his hands together in delight as the heretic Servetus slowly burns to death. I think if you did an exercise in word association, if people were willing to do this for church discipline, they would most often equate church discipline with excommunication. Well, because church discipline is not at all understood and uh, never too popular, it is rarely appreciated as a good thing. Many evangelicals would consider church discipline to be medieval and vaguely barbaric. And yet reformers were wise to put church discipline among the distinguishing marks of a real and true church. Their wisdom, including church discipline, is not unrelated to passages such as our text here in 1 Corinthians 5. As we wade into these waters, which many people would call dark and murky, I want to start by just trying to understand church discipline. Then we're going to look at the necessity of church discipline and end with the purposes of church discipline. In order to understand church discipline, we first need to think about the church as a society of disciples all following the Lord Jesus Christ. This society of disciples is to be disciplined and orderly with rules governing the interaction of the members as well as guiding the activities of this society. Individual members do not have the freedom to make up their own rules or to act however they wish. Shared expectations are part of any organized society, no matter how small or how large that society might be. Everyone who is involved is supposed to understand the rules and to abide by them. And in this way, that society remains relatively peaceful internally, and she is free to pursue her shared purpose externally. Think about a military body, for instance. 
An army has clear rules and regulations that everyone is expected to obey, from the lowest private up to the five-star general. And soldiers cannot just do anything they want willy-nilly. They can't go their own way, make up their own rules. There's a very strict order that binds a military unit together so that they can then work at accomplishing their objectives and their purposes. In this way, the church is such a society, a society of disciples. Now, in order to maintain discipline within the society, officers of that society are given certain power to exercise. This is the power to command and to require obedience, and it is the power to correct and to punish offenders for disobedience. So the officers are vested with authority to say, here are the rules, and you must obey them. And if you break the rules, here are the consequences. Uh, This even happens in families, doesn't it? Parents have the authority to tell their children, you may not lie. And if you do lie, there's going to be consequences. You're going to get spanked. You might have privileges taken away. You might even get your mouth washed out with soap. But the rules are there to be obeyed by everyone, and the officers, the leaders, are there to enforce the rules, to make sure the members of that society obey and follow. Now, Jesus spoke about this to his disciples in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Now, what Jesus is saying there to his disciples is that as they exercised authority in the church, they were not to follow the pattern of the world. Because the world has a certain approach which is top-down, heavy-handed. They lord it over their subjects. They threaten, and sometimes they abuse their subjects. And this is how worldly leaders coerce their subjects to obey them. But Jesus says, you know, it's much different in my kingdom. Because I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So my pattern of leadership is not this top-down, heavy-handed authoritarian style that the Roman government uses, my approach is servant leadership. You lead through service. 
And so, in the church, discipline is not to be heavy-handed intimidation where those who are in power lord it over the membership. But rather, discipline is to be gentle, humble, and particularly pastoral. It is to be service. So don't think of a Roman government model. Think of a shepherd who is guiding and caring for his flock. And that shepherd has a rod and a staff. And the rod is to enforce some correction when correction is needed, and even to fend off wolves who would attack the flock. The staff is for direction so that the flock will know the way to go. But the shepherd, as he cares for his sheep, is tender, he is humble, he is serving the flock all the time. He's not just beating the flock and threatening the flock and excoriating the flock, but he is gently loving and caring for them. And that's what Jesus says is to be the nature of leadership in the church, especially when it comes to discipline. It's pastoral. Now, within our Reformed circles, there is one important distinction that I find most helpful between administrative discipline and judicial discipline. You may never have heard those terms. They're, they're pretty important. Administrative discipline and judicial discipline. Judicial discipline happens whenever there is an offense against the Word of God, a clear and obvious sin. And there are steps for confronting sinful offenses, which Jesus outlines for us in Matthew 18. You go to your brother, and you tell him about his sin. And if he doesn't listen, you bring back two or three others. And together you tell him about his sin. And if he still doesn't listen, then you bring it to the church. So there's clear procedures that Jesus has given to us. Now along the way, there are some careful procedures that ensure that the accused is given every opportunity to defend himself against charges brought against him, while at the same time, the victims of the offense are always protected and cared for. So in these offenses, you have an offender, the one who does the bad thing, and you've got the victims, the one who suffers at the hands of the offender. And in these procedures, these judicial procedures which God has given us, we give the offender every opportunity to explain and defend himself. Why did you do what you did? But we also protect the victims who have been harmed and hurt by the offender. And there's this nice balance 
in church discipline between the rights of the accused and the rights of the victim. And both have to be held in tension so that we don't carry out injustice in either one of these directions. Now, judicial discipline is really what most people think of whenever they hear the term church discipline. And it's all orderly. In fact, sometimes it's excessively orderly. But there's also then administrative discipline. Administrative discipline is basically all discipline that is not judicial. So you've got judicial discipline, which is the handling of offenses. And then you've got everything else. Administrative discipline. Well, you might wonder, can you give me some examples of administrative discipline? What, what is administrative discipline? Well, it includes things like taking accurate minutes at a congregational meeting. That's discipline. To make sure that we have an accurate record of all that was said and done at the congregational meeting. It involves starting a worship service at the time announced. When you arrived here this morning, maybe quarter till nine, ten till nine, five till nine, or even nine, your expectation was at nine o'clock we're starting. You read the sign out there. <laughs> you know nine o'clock is when we start. What if we said, well, how about if we start about ten fifteen? Well, that wouldn't be very disciplined. You'd probably get tired of waiting. You might even just go home. Things like starting worship services at the appointed time. That's discipline. It's discipline to make sure that all of the proper elements of worship are employed during a worship service. We have had prayers. We have sung psalms and hymns. We have had an offering. We have had the reading of God's Word. We are now having the preaching of God's Word. All of these different biblical elements, part of worship, are included and carried out, and that is discipline. You know, I can't just say, well, you know, I'm kind of tired of singing, so we're not going to sing in this church anymore. No, that's an element of worship. We need to be doing that. And so discipline says we have all of the regular Elements. So administrative discipline, all these sorts of things, really tend to be rather mundane and unexciting. But they are important for an orderly society to exist. Well, coming back just a moment to judicial discipline, let me again emphasize that there is a clear process that is designed in order to protect the rights of everyone involved in a situation. So when there is an offense, judicial discipline provides the mechanisms for discovering what actually went on and who was in the wrong, who was the victim. If the facts are disputed, well then a trial can be held, testimony can be heard, evidence can be examined, and the court then adjudicates the matter. The outcome can be either a conviction or an acquittal. 
If there is a conviction, then a censure might be determined in order to correct the offender. And in the event that there's an acquittal, then everything is basically finished. Now, if the accused, especially, believes that the church court has made a mistake, has convicted him wrongly, well, then there are rights of redress. There are appeals and complaints. Justice is determined as the matter works its way through the ecclesiastical courts. And this is particularly and especially true in Presbyterianism. In independent churches, and there are many independent churches in our country, whatever is decided on the local level is the last word, period. And if you're censured by the local church, you can either take it or you can leave. That's all you can do. In Presbyterianism, we have courts of appeal. So let's say that the session convicts you of something you didn't do. You feel that you were wrongly convicted by the session and that you are innocent of the thing you are accused of. You can go to the presbytery. You can appeal to the presbytery. And the presbytery will take it up and they'll hear the whole thing and they'll decide whether the session did right or wrong. Let's say that the presbytery sides with the session. They say, we think the session did what was correct. And you say, but, but I didn't do that thing. And even though you've agreed with the session, I now think you're both wrong. What do you do then? You go to General Assembly. And every year at General Assembly, there are appeals and complaints brought before the whole church to be handled by the church. You see, you've got to have rights of appeal. Otherwise, you have a concentrated group of men who say, our word is law, and if you don't like it, you can lump it or leave. And we say, sometimes church courts make mistakes. Sometimes sessions can be wrong. Sometimes presbyteries can be wrong. That's why you have to have a way to appeal to a broader court to seek justice. And this is very essential for the proper exercise of church discipline. When you only have one circle and you don't have these larger, broader, higher courts, you don't have the biblical approach to church discipline. Church discipline must include rights of appeal, ways to complain, actions of lower courts. Well, if those are some of the main outlines of ecclesiastical discipline, we want next to ask, why is it necessary? Why is this important? There's some short and pithy answers to that question. Why is it necessary? Because of human sin. Human beings sin. The prevalence of disobedience makes discipline necessary. Why do parents have to discipline and correct 
children. Because children sin. I know this. I'm a father. I saw every one of my children sin. And because people sin, discipline becomes necessary. If all of our children were perfect little angels and never ever lied or stole or hit their brother or did any of those bad things, we wouldn't really need discipline, would we? But we all know that this world is full of sinners who sin, and some of those sinners are our own children. Likewise, some of the sinners are people in the church. And so we need to have discipline because of human sin. Another short answer is this. Because God himself disciplines those whom he loves. What was happening in Exodus 4? Moses is carrying out his ministry. He's all set to go to Pharaoh and challenge Pharaoh. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, the Lord comes to the lodging place to kill him. I believe that's Moses that's in danger here. Why? Because Moses hadn't circumcised his son. He had neglected to circumcise Gershom. And because he had not obeyed God's command in Genesis 17 to circumcise your sons, God came to take Moses' life. If it hadn't been for the sharp-witted Zipporah, who intervened and quickly circumcised the son, Moses would have died right there. God loves his children. And those whom he loves, he disciplines. According to Hebrews 12, if we do not have discipline, that indicates that we are not true sons, but rather we are illegitimate. God himself disciplines those he loves. And then there is also the simple reason that God commands it. If God orders his church to do so, then it must be important, and we ought to obey. So in brief, discipline is necessary because people sin, because God disciplines his own children, and he commands his church to maintain discipline. That's the short answers. If you want a longer answer, a long-form response to the question then we must see that discipline is necessary because of the priority on justice which is found throughout the scriptures. If you're a Bible reader, you know this. The Bible is very concerned with justice, especially with justice for the oppressed. I'm not talking about modern-day social justice stuff. That's not the point. I'm talking about real justice, biblical justice for the oppressed. The orphan, the widow, the alien, all of these are vulnerable to tyranny and to oppression. And God cares. He cares for his weak and helpless sheep. He defends the defenseless, and he makes sure that his people receive justice. 
When evildoers make them their prey, the Lord comes to the rescue. God's very character is perfectly just, and His justice governs and controls how He rules. Psalm 89 verse 14 makes this point. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Now this is seen in stark contrast to the rulers and kingdoms of this world. Our own government on the national and state and even on the local level. Is justice and righteousness the chief priority, the very foundation of American civil government? Color me skeptical. It's more about power and money than it is about justice and righteousness. You look at all of the empires of this world... And you rarely find civil governments who are really committed to true righteousness and true justice. It is just not the way of man. The way of man is to seize power, hold on to it, and get out of it whatever you can. It's a mechanism to line your own pockets and to exercise a harsh authority over your enemies. That's what power politics is. And yet God has a much different commitment. He is deeply committed to justice. Now, it is not uncommon for such concerns about justice to be ignored. A blind eye is often turned toward both the offender and to the victim. It is frequently deemed too much trouble to go through disciplinary process in order to hold offenders accountable. And sadly, sometimes this is done with a wink and a nudge from the leadership of the church. This was the case, sadly, in Corinth. A man had taken his father's wife and was relating to her as his own wife. This kind of sexual immorality was not even practiced among the licentious Corinthians. Unbelieving Gentiles were scandalized by these practices. But within the Corinthian church at that time, there was tolerance for this man and his practice. In fact, it seems as if some in the church were even boasting about his wickedness. There was no accountability. Nobody had confronted him or called him to repentance. They had utterly failed to address this very serious matter with any kind of disciplinary procedure. This scandal became a public disgrace. It brought shame on the church and upon Christ. So as Paul writes about this, he is beside himself. Why had they allowed this to go on? Why hadn't they confronted this immoral man and put him out of their church? Paul then leaves no doubt as what they must now do. He says plainly and clearly, 
remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, in order that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is telling them, practice church discipline against this offender. Your failure to do so has been scandalous. Now you must do the right thing and correct the situation that you yourselves, through your negligence, have allowed to develop. When the church discipline is rightly exercised, there are a number of good fruits that come from that effort. And this is finally what I'm calling the purposes of church discipline. What is the purpose behind this process? Well, first and foremost, church discipline protects and promotes the glory of Jesus Christ. As king and head of his church, his honor is on the line whenever discipline is neglected. If there's disorder in a kingdom, people will begin to wonder whether the king himself has countenanced that disorder. Does the king approve of how his kingdom is being administered, people ask? So we must practice church discipline, lest the name of Christ be dragged through the mud on our account. The church, church's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if we will faithfully administer church discipline, Christ will be honored. Now, if there were no other reasons, no other purposes, we would say that's enough. We want to honor Christ. We don't want people to be criticizing our Savior because of our lack of discipline. So, in order to bring honor to Jesus, we want to do this. But there are other purposes, other reasons. A second purpose of church discipline is the protection of the victims of offenses. The church simply cannot allow victims to bear the pain and shame of offenses without our care. Far too often, especially in cases of abuse, victims have been blamed for the behaviors of their offenders. This is unjust, unholy, and doubly hurtful. There's been a lot of cases in a variety of denominations. Roman Catholic Church, Southern Baptist Church, even in some Presbyterian circles, where there have been sexual abuse cases that have come up. And very often, the blame is put on the victim rather than on the abuser. That is horrible injustice. It is to say to a victim, you've been hurt once, we're going to hurt you again by blaming you for what happened to you. Victims need the loving care of a pastoral church that is not piling on and blaming them 
but is coming alongside of them and saying, we know you've been hurt, and we're here to help you, not to hurt you more. One of the ways that we can help victims is to discipline their oppressors because this shows mercy and kindness when the offender is held accountable. Church discipline is also designed to reclaim the offender if at all possible. In the case of the man that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, he was put out of the church. The Corinthians responded to Paul's admonition, and they disciplined him. They excommunicated him. But then in 2 Corinthians, we read that he had repented and was very sorrowful for what he had done. And then it was necessary to restore him in light of his repentance. When an offender is reclaimed through church discipline, there is great rejoicing even among the angels in heaven. We're not wanting to destroy the offender. We're wanting to reclaim him or her. And by administering discipline, we are saying, you've done something so serious we can no longer associate with you or allow you to be a member in this church. We can't have you coming to the Lord's table because that would be judgment to your own soul. So we're putting you out in order that you will realize what you've done. And if you come back to us, if you've been humbled, and if you're repentant, we are ready to restore you. And so there is the hope, the prayer, and the purpose to, if possible, reclaim the offender. A fourth purpose of church discipline is deterrence of potential future offenders. When people in the pew see that discipline is enacted against offenders, they will tend to take note. And they may not be quite so quick to commit similar offenses themselves if they have watched someone else undergo church discipline. And so deterrence is a way, an important way, to prevent copycat offenses. Now, I mean, again, we even see this in family life, don't we? So, I'll, I'll tell a story about my, my own upbringing. There was one night, we were living in Sioux Center, Iowa. Our whole family was down in the living room watching TV. And my brother Greg did something. I don't know what he did. But my dad sent him up to bed just like that. Greg, you're gone. So Greg went up, and I'm sure he got the good spanking for that. Not much later, Amy did something. And again, I don't remember what she did, but poof, she was gone too. And here sits Brian thinking, oh, please, don't, don't, don't. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. You watch other people go through discipline, and you say to yourself, that doesn't look so fun. I don't want to be sent up to my room with a spank. I don't think I'll do that. 
This is true not only in church discipline, but this is true more broadly in society. If you read in the paper about something, someone getting arrested, you say to yourself, take note, note to self, not going to do that. Deterrence. And then finally, the faithful exercise of church discipline is an important part of our witness to a watching world. What does the world so often say about the church? Oh, it's just full of hypocrites. Those Christians, they say one thing and they do another thing. Oh, they may talk tough about sin, but whenever sinful offenses occur in their own ranks, they look the other way. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. There is nothing more devastating to a church's witness than its failure to discipline their own. What happened in Corinth got out. The Corinthian community knew about this. And they were scandalized and appalled by it. And the witness of the Corinthian church was damaged by their failure to do discipline on that offender. If we're ever going to turn the tide on this charge of hypocrisy, we've got to police our own society. And we've got to maintain that the rules are not just talking points, but the rules matter. And we live by these rules because God has given us these rules. And we say to the world, look, we are not perfect, but we're not flaming hypocrites either. Because we do take these matters seriously and we do discipline within our own community. Now I realize that this sermon is something like John the Baptist out in the wilderness. A voice crying in the wilderness. Oh, this is so out of step with modern evangelical Christianity. You will not, I mean, search sermon audio, look around. You will not find tons and tons and tons of sermons on church discipline because it's not practiced in most churches. And even churches that have a commitment on paper don't often practice it. And we have become culturally irrelevant. The world mocks us and disregards us. If we're going to get back in the right direction and be the church in this nation, we have to have these marks. We have to have sound preaching regularly flowing from the pulpits. We need to have the administration of sacraments rightly done, and we need discipline. And it's that third one which is so hard to convince people of. But we've got to keep on because this is what God wants for His church. To be a disciplined, orderly society of disciples. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You discipline those whom You love and that You show us that we are Your true children by the discipline You bring to us. Forgive us for when we have been slow to practice this important aspect of our life as a church. 
help us in our own individual lives to discipline and govern ourselves. Help us to discipline our children, our family life, and help us in our church life. Lord, help your church in this land to regain a vision for the value and importance of sound and faithful discipline. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is...